Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cover Story. If this is your first time listening, we are delighted to have you with us. To bring you up to speed, Cover Story is a podcast about music. And in our first season, we've been chit-chatting about some cover songs we really dig. What makes them so good? What's the inspiration behind the original and the cover? Essentially, what is the story with the cover story? We want to thank our subscribers and listeners for your feedback so far. Keep it coming, yo. We love hearing from our listeners. You can get in touch with us over at thecoverstorypodcast.com. You can also find the link to our Cover Story Season 1 playlist on Spotify. The running playlist has every little gem of a song we've covered in Episodes 1 through 5. So check it out. But don't go snooping around my Spotify, because then you'll learn all kinds of shit about me. Well, it is a balmy 13 degrees here in good old Allenhurst. For those geographically and meteorically curious, for the moment we have survived this bomb cyclone. Luckily, the porch is nice and toasty warm. I am joined by my co-host, Filler, and his lovely wife, Jenny, and I am happy to share that we just cracked open some ice-cold beers I smuggled back from the Great White North. A shout-out to Desh and Sarah for traipsing all across the Green Mountain State to procure these delicious beverages for me. I tell you what, Vermont does a lot of things quite well. This little sip of sunshine is just one of them. Cheers, y'all. Anyway, we have a great show for you tonight. On side A, we are heading back to 1967, where things were as hazy as my mind after a few sips of this beer. We will chat about Simon and Garfunkel's Hazy Shade of Winter, which the Bengals covered for the soundtrack to the iconic 80s film Less Than Zero. Side B, folks, well, hold on to your cowboy hats, ladies. My man Sturgill does, in my opinion, one of the greatest covers of all time with his 2014 rendition of The Promise. Holy smokes, Sturgill's version just gets me every time, and I almost want to flip this tape over to side B so we can get to it straight away. But first, I want to take you to 1967 and the summer of love. America, 1967. Lyndon Johnson is the President of the United States. There are 250,000 U.S. troops in South Vietnam. John Lennon is more popular than Jesus. We've got demonstrations, propaganda, communism, civil rights, activism. Bob Dylan has a motorcycle accident and disappears from the public eye for one year. The Doors release their self-titled debut LP. Star Trek premieres on NBC. The Cold War, the space race. Actor Ronald Reagan is elected governor of California on November 8th. And fall turns to a hazy shade of winter. Hazy Shade of Winter is a song by American singer-songwriters Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel from their fourth studio album, Bookends, released in 1968. Dating back to Simon's days in England in 1965, the song follows a hopeless poet, unsure of his achievements in life. Bookends, recorded in fits and starts from 1966 to 1968, is a concept album that explores the progression of life from childhood to old age. The album was considered a breakthrough for the songwriter duo, putting them at the forefront of the cultural movement of the 1960s, along with artists like Bob Dylan, The Stones, and The Beatles. Side A explores the themes of the human life cycle, while Side B largely consists of unused material from the graduate film soundtrack, including the aforementioned Hazy Shade of Winter. Hazy Shade is a particularly unique song for Simon and Garfunkel as it exudes a more rock-infused sound, leading with a fierce guitar rift and following a more straightforward verse-refrain structure. 
Being in the studio and making records in the 1960s, I can tell you, it was very uncorporate. It was highly spirited. It was kids at play. It was just a wonder that you were allowed to do this, that two middle-class kids can sign a contract, rehearse, and get their talent in the studio, and then find that the entire distribution network is waiting to put out their products. It was wonderful and simple, sincere and uncynical. That was Art Garfunkel so eloquently articulating the joy and ease of the creative recording process in the mid-1960s. Art and Paul had signed an old-school contract for bookends, where the label paid all of the recording costs, and they fully took advantage, hiring the best players around, taking their time, being meticulous and democratic. The recording industry was still in its relative infancy, and the 1960s was the time before the record executives started to overtly insert themselves in the creative process. They simply gave a lot of kids the keys to the Cadillac to put forth their energies and see what stuck. Recording artist, rock star, composer Frank Zappa put it the best. Remember the 60s, you know, that era that a lot of people, you know, have these glorious memories of? One thing that did happen during the 60s was some music of an unusual or experimental nature did get recorded and did get released. Now look at who the executives were in those companies at those times. Not hip young guys. These were cigar-chomping old guys who looked at the product that came and said, I don't know. Who knows what it is? Record it, stick it out of it, sells, all right. We were better off with those guys than we are now with the supposedly hip young executives, you know, who are making the decisions of what people should see and hear in the marketplace. These, the young guys are more conservative and more dangerous to the art form than the old guys with the cigars ever were. Frank knew what was happening in the 60s better than anyone. This was also a time when America was in the throes of social change and unrest, a time when artists were counted upon to light the way for the war-torn youth, and they were given a green light to do so. A grassroots movement motivated in part by the undercurrents of greed, part image, part truth, and you knowingly or unknowingly take the part that appeals to you. The dynamics of democracy and capitalism, dancing in unharmonious symbiosis, a generation at the crest of social upheaval, cultural experiment being tested for its malleability. Fast forward 20 years, activism turns to nihilism, weed turns to speed, the patriotism turns to cynicism. It's 1985, and soon-to-be-published novelist Brett Easton Ellis is attending a small liberal arts school in the northeastern United States. He was 21 years old when his debut novel was published, Less Than Zero, titled after an Elvis Costello song of the same name, follows the life of a rich young college student who has returned to his hometown of Los Angeles, California, for the winter break. Through first-person narration, the lead character, Clay, describes his alienation from the culture around him, the drug-fueled nights of partying, where he picks up various men and women for one-night stands. Clay becomes progressively disillusioned as he witnesses the apathy of his friends towards each other's suffering. At one party, he watches revelers joke and take Polaroids of his friends while she injects heroin. Clay's own best friend becomes a heroin addict, indebted to a drug dealer who abuses him sexually and emotionally. Less Than Zero continues its descent into violent nihilism and apathy with little to no redemption as Clay heads back to college in New Hampshire. 
The children of 1960s hippies, ironic, maybe. The need to descend into a vacuum, void of meaning, a reaction to a decade of violence and war, a hangover from oppression projected onto the next of kin, maybe, perhaps. In 1987, the book, Lesson Zero, was loosely adapted into a movie starring Andrew McCarthy, Robert Downey Jr., Jamie Gertz, and James Spader. Despite all of the questionable liberties taken with the content, it did succeed as a visually sharp and stunning representation of the time. It was Ronald Reagan's 1980s, but the threads of the 1960s psychedelia and Southern California jangle pop found their way into the new wave, even if the former generation's brand of activism and altruism did not. This generation's brand of capitalism followed the mantra that greed is good for everybody. Me first. Reaganomics. Voodoo. Economics. But the threads of Simon and Garfunkel were there. The jangle pop found its way into the Bengals' brand of pop. So what does this have to do with Hazy Shade of Winter? Well, at the time that Less Than Zero was being adapted for the big screen, power pop stars the Bengals were fresh off their first number one hit, Walk Like an Egyptian, from their second album, Different Light. Shortly thereafter, the band was approached to record a song for the soundtrack to the film. The Bengals had actually been performing Hazy Shade of Winter live since 1983. Singer Susanna Hoff first heard the song a few years earlier, as she juggled her role fronting the Bengals and her day job working in a ceramics factory. One morning while at work, Simon and Garfunkel's Hazy Shade of Winter came on the radio. Hoff remembers, when I first heard the song, I thought, this is so perfect for the Bengals, and she began to include the song in their live sets. Five years later, when Susanna Hoff was asked to come up with material for the soundtrack, Hazy Shade of Winter, a chilly view of how time crushes youth, fit the bill perfectly. Enter producer extraordinaire Rick Rubin, and the iconic opening guitar rift of Hazy Shade is converted into a cold, sharp, bludgeoning electric guitar riff. Lead vocals were performed jointly by all members of the band in the spirit of Simon and Garfunkel's camaraderie and democratic creative process of the mid-1960s. The Bengals' rendition charges through fits of their jangly roots while embracing a slick and powerful new pop style, one that matched the visual aesthetic of the film, as well as the urgency of the film's content. The version was subsequently released as a single on Rick Rubin's Def Jam label and unexpectedly performed well on the charts. Ebbs and flow of generational yin and yang, materialism and self-involvement, altruism and social enlightenment are these parts of the human life cycle to which Paul Simon refers. Are these cultural bookends, so to speak? Does the self drive the capital, or does the capital drive the self? Is the Lyndon B. Johnson era hazy shade truly any different from the Reagan era one? Simon and Garfunkel talk about time, aging, and reflection. Brady Stanellis doesn't talk about anything. He is simply a literary conduit for a self-driven brand of nihilism. We are all pulled between these two poles in the existentiality of our lives over and over and over and over the course of everything. We find ourselves cycling back to the timeless words and melodies that help define each of our paths. Whether it's one of apathy or one of empathy, it feeds the larger narrative that is the human lifetime. For some of us, the loss of youth is also the equal gain of wisdom and empathy. And for others, the loss of youth is simply a loss. I don't 
don't think so. All right, so less than zero, Brett Easton Ellis. Filler, I know you're super drawn to Brett Easton Ellis as an mm-hmm. author, and I want to pick your brain about it. Sure. In particular, the book, um, which is completely different from the film. Right. Um, is that a question? That's kind of like a statement question because mm-hmm. this beer is 8% and my brain is so fussy. <laughs> <laughs> so most of my questions are going to be the in the form of like sure. statement questions. Well, well, you have to guess my question. So, so <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis himself um, recognizes all these years later that the film is a really brilliant visual representation of the time and that it is. The actual narrative though is totally different you have the same characters you have the same setting you have the same general arc but in the book there really is no redemption there really is no hero there almost is but like not even and in the movie they build this love triangle and this hero and and this whole thing that really has nothing to do with the book but, so they make it very Hollywood, obviously. No, they do, and, and, they, and they really feel a need to do so. And, and obviously, the, the executives are getting involved and getting really self-conscious about what's going to sell the film. And, you know, that story that everybody knows. The book is incredible and horrifying. Nobody was going to spend $8 million to make that. That exact book. Right. Have you read his other books, like American Psycho? All of them. All of them. And mm-hmm. what... How is the ranking for you? What is your favorite? The ranking for most people would probably be American Psycho first. I'm kind of equal between American Psycho, Less Than Zero, and Rules of Attraction. American Psycho is the most impressive. It is the most impressive. It's mind-blowingly detailed. So it's definitely the most impressive. Less Than Zero is incredibly accessible. There's no fancy prose. There's just flow. And... There's no point to be made. And so it's disorienting. That's when you learn about Brady Stanellis's writing style. It's disorienting. But better than disorienting, it's reorienting. Hmm. You don't find yourself in the middle of nowhere. It's sort of the same brand of like like the, the Bangles taking psychedelia from the 60s or any of these 80s bands that are going back 20 years and taking psychedelia and reframing it in this sort of like modern sharp way. That's Brett Easton Ellis' literary style. It draws from that disorienting psychedelia, but it's reorienting, and it's, and it's sharp, and it's poignant. It's palpable, even though you don't know where you are or where you're going. And we're talking about Hazy Shade of Winter because it's on the soundtrack, which I love as a starting off point, and I hope that we can dive deeper into soundtracks in general. But it's interesting to me when I when I read about the soundtrack for Less Than Zero, I mean, Hazy Shade of Winter is pretty much the only song that really uh, stands out as a real performance. I mean, they- right. Well, they hit it right off the top. So Clay, the character, he's coming back from college. He's in a taxi from the airport. He's looking out the window. Like, they... they they make a big thing of he's back in town mm-hmm. for the first time in a while, even though he was there in Thanksgiving like three weeks earlier. They're pretty sloppy about that in yeah. the film. But he's back in town for the first time in a while, and it's like a pretty epic riff. It's like... 
Yeah. You know? And I love that for, for, you know, so this film came out in 1987, did we say? Which was 30 years ago, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was 12 or so at the time. Yeah. And uh, I was a huge Bengals fan. I mean, like, I loved the Bengals. I loved I Susanna Hoffs. I, I was in a jazz, <laughs> embarrassed to admit it, but in Allenhurst, actually with your sister, oh, yeah. Uh, Rennie, yeah. Um, we did a, um, a, like a, what do you call it when you do like a jazz Dance performance. We did it to recital. Walk, recital. We yeah. did it to walk. I was like, probably there. <laughs> we did it to walk like an Egyptian, and um, I don't know. I remember the video, and I just was like, I just thought she was so pretty and cool, and um, playing her guitar and wearing those like cool dresses and stuff, and um, just being a girl band and awesome. And then the, their video of less than or um, hazy. Thank you, hazy shade of hazy shade of sip of sunshine. <laughs> I tell you what. <laughs> oh. Beer and not gonna, I'm blaming. I'm blaming this on the bomb cyclone. <laughs> That's the, right. This is the effects of the the bomb. Oh, yes, bomb cyclone. Um, no, but her their video, the Bengals video of Hazy Shade of Winter, I loved. And I guess they had to stop playing it for licensing reasons because they had so many clips of the film in it that eventually, like, they changed it. But right, um, read something. Anyway, I just I just love how the iconic '80s sort of like pop bangly band. Um, pairs up for this like dark uh, portrayal. It's good. It's good shit. What does the man who said no do when everyone around him responds with a yes? That's a question Sturgill Simpson had to ask himself upon embarking on his first recordings after his 2014 breakthrough, Metamodern Sounds and Country Music. That album, which showed a deep understanding of country's formalities while playing on the individualistic rebelliousness of rock and enlisting the emotional power of soul, pushed the 37-year-old Kentuckian from a respectable spot in Nashville's crowded talent pool right to its center. Supporting the album on the road with his dazzling band, Simpson became some folk's rebel savior, furthering the never-ending quest for an authentic American sound. The more people heard him, the more he came to be viewed as a way out of mainstream country formulas, of Americana's sedated streak, of indie rock's occasional preciousness. Simpson became the answer to the answers that weren't adequate anymore, a genuine alternative to alt-country, as the New York Times put it just two weeks ago. Simpson, however, is not an insurrectionist, a nihilist, or a punk. He's a thinker who likes to challenge himself, and is as interested in how the quest for order impacts life and art as he is in the moments that spin that order into pieces. On A Sailor's Guide to Earth, he uses a highly disruptive yet also utterly conventional life event, the birth of his first son, to frame a song cycle about order and insubordination, the longing to fit in and the persistent urge to break away. Keep it between the lines, he advises his boy in the song of that title, a soul breakdown that starts with a military work song. But for Simpson, life's lines are forever permeable. Just a few tracks later, he's comforting the kid with the mystic's vision of diffuse grace, a universal heart glowing, flowing all around you. Bringing you back to The Promise, which is on Sturgill's 2014 album, Metamodern Sounds and Country Music, I wanted to share an article I read in CMT Edge magazine. Despite his album's long-winded title, Simpson comes across as a traditionally rowdy honky-tonker with a voice that recalls Merle Haggard, guitar licks that bring Buck Owens to mind, and an intriguing repertoire of cover songs, 
One of the most compelling tracks on Metamodern is a cover of The Promise, the lone hit from the late 80s group When in Rome. The CMT Edge interviewer goes on to ask Sturgill, what led you to cover The Promise? And Simpson says, I always wanted to do an organic, countrypolitan Roy Orbison version of that song, and I thought since we were making this album centrally themed around love, it was the perfect excuse. Symbolically, it fits with the title of the record, taking something from the 80s and taking it back even further in time. I toyed with the idea of doing a complete scene-for-scene remake of the video, which was filmed through all these windows in this house and had all this very melodramatic hair flips. I wanted to pay homage. Dude had some righteous hair. If you wait around, I'll make you fall for me. I promise you, I promise you, I will. Hmm. Countrypolitan. Countrypolitan. I like that. Me too. And I like that. That's how he refers to like something that's Roy Orbison esque. Mm-hmm. Because um, I never heard that before, and you know Roy Orbison's one of my favorites of all time, and I've never heard countrypolitan. That's perfect. Yeah. Because. He's sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And a lot of country is sophisticated as well, but sometimes not perceived as such. So I find that interesting. Um, when in Rome. When in Rome. Yeah. There, that's like just some group that had had a hit, and they sounded like New Order, but that vocalist, I don't know anything about them. Yeah. Um, and those lyrics are fantastic. Um, it's agile. When in Rome, 1988... So what I discovered in doing some research for When in Rome, I don't need to do so much research on Sturgill because I, I just love him. Um, but um, apparently there are two different When in Rome bands because they broke up and for legal reasons, um, there's a When in Rome 2 and a One in Rome UK. So like it's the same, like three dudes split up and one of them went to one band and one of them went to the other and they kept the name When in Rome. So it's like so yeah. wonky. At any rate. Well, at any rate, they wrote one good track. A one-hit wonder. And uh, Sturgill comes along many years later, covers this song, and kind of makes it like a classic. Takes it back before it's time. He takes it back before it's time, which, as he referenced in that interview... Um, his whole that whole album is about time and turtles all the way down is a biblical reference and um, that's to the time. opening that's the opening yeah track that's on the, the opening track I mean, I mean opening track on the album yes yeah. and I have to say yeah, when I first heard this album so one of the things I struggle with as a as a huge music listener right is when you find an album that's good from soup to nuts right from the beginning all the way through and I remember the first time I listened to Meta Modern all the way through I was like damn this is definitely uh, a full album from from point A to point Z. I like all of the songs, right and it took me back to like that old school when I w- would listen to tapes or or um, CDs where you actually had to listen to the whole thing mm-hmm. all the way through. Um, we were spoiled. We were spoiled. We were spoiled. That that was the format for. It's funny you say spoiled. three decades. That you say spoiled because mm-hmm. nowadays I feel like it's so cheap and easy to make a playlist. Like everything mm-hmm. is so like quick and easy. It's so um, kids today, like you know, they don't know the struggle of like trying to get your 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 song to fit on one right. side of the tape. Yeah, when I first went to college, um, and I went to college in New York City, 
when I first went to college in the late 90s. It was expensive to be there. Mm-hmm. You had a finite amount of money and you're living in New York City. And I, I would buy like a CD, like maybe like a Tower Records on like, I don't know, West 4th Square. But I'd buy maybe like once every six to eight weeks. And I would live with that one album. Even if I bought one, I'd buy it based on like the cover of yeah. it and the section it was in and whatever. And even if I didn't like it, I was forced to live with it for like six to eight weeks. And most of the time, I would get so much out of it. But I feel like it's interesting. Even if I didn't like it at first. Spoiled, because it's so true. Like in hindsight, we were all, you know, privy to so many other uh, songs and musics we would have just skipped over, you know, today, right? Well, the idea of like a a front to back album, like a well conceived album, Mm -hmm. where you're so surprised from one song to the other and it's so dynamic. Yeah. Is something that was um, that we had like a good run yeah, with totally. for like three decades. Like, and maybe it started around you know mid '60s Beatles. Yeah, you know, maybe it started with like a Sgt. Pepper's. So when we were pre-gaming uh, earlier before we started this episode, um, we were talking about where we were when we first heard the Promise. And I know Jenny, you're itching because uh, you know we got to let everyone know that Napoleon Dynamite is your is your point of reference for. For um, and filler, you were just telling me how you when you were watching the leftovers, that was your right. uh, introduction to it. Well, it was I think like December 2014, and my friend Kitty was down um, visiting me and the boys, and um, like, dude, Amanda, she calls me Costanza. That's my my maiden name. She's like, dude, Costanza, you're gonna love this. Listen to this. The cover of this song, the 80s song, The Promise, and she played it for me. We we're in my dining room. The boys are asleep. And I was just fucking blown away. I was like, what the hell? Who is this? I love it. And um, so that was in the, in the beginning stages of, of Sturgill, getting you know kind of out there. And she came down like a month later, and we saw him at the Stone Pony in February. Whoa. And it was a blizzard. And this was like a tiny little you know thing. And um, it was just in, it was just like incredible wow. to see him there. Yeah. And then I followed small that venue. small venue, yeah. tight, that great band that they talked about, just like incredible. Of course, he does the promise. And it's like, you know, you hear this song on Metamodern and it's it's there's a part that gets you every time where he and I know you're going to play it for everybody. I can. I'm not even going to try to sing it. <laughs> What's the, the part? Octave. What does he say? It's the last 30 seconds. Yeah. And he goes up an octave. Yeah. The whole time he's been singing. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. But he does it so so well, and I've seen him perform so many times yeah. live. Um, and saves it for the last thirty-two seconds or something. It's like literally that short. It's the last chorus. He goes up an octave. Yeah, and and it's that kind of confidence, you know, because like. It would have been amazing if he never went up there. Yeah. And you don't expect him to go there. It's been brilliant the whole fucking time. you got to be one egoless person to be able to save kind of yeah. epicness for the last 30 seconds of like a three-minute song. Yeah. You know, pretty it's, fucking awesome. I'm sorry when I'm thinking of right words to say. It's a, it's incredible, and um, 
but it also, like, when I heard that, it totally blew the roof off of a cover song, right? Because this whole time, you know, now we're on episode five here. We've been talking about cover songs. And when I heard that, I mean, I'm just like, how did he even think to do this song? Sure. How did he, like, who gave him this idea? And it turns out, much like uh, the Nirvana song um, that he does for the second album, mm-hmm. uh, he covers in Bloom, it was his wife. Uh, she suggested that um, he do this song. And, um, you know, she had a huge impact on his life, recovery and everything like that. He was, um, you know, he ha- he has a fascinating, you know, biography and background story. He was in the Navy. He moved to Utah where he ended up working on the railroads. And she came from Nashville to visit him out there. And she was like, dude, you're not, what are you doing? Like, you know, music is your passion. you got to follow your passion. And so they both moved back to Nashville. And that's where he started kind of like trying to, pound the pavement with, with his music but um, so he attributes a lot of his, his uh, tipping point success uh, and turning it around to, to his wife and that's why when I hear the promise and just you can tell he's singing to her you know and just it's beautiful yeah <laughs> he's lost in thought I also love what I love about Sturgill I think he's like a badass he doesn't give a fuck you know and like this latest stint that he did at the uh, I wouldn't even call it a stint at the Country Music Awards did you hear about this he's okay so they had the Country Music Awards the CMAs and he's um, his album doesn't get nominated and he's pissed off about that and um, a lot of that has to do with the politics and, and so forth and I'm sure there are experts in Nashville that could speak much better to this than I can even though I went to college down there and <laughs> I love Nashville but but um, so he, he's out in front of the CMAs performing um, just songs, all kinds of songs um, out there. And he's gathering like um, a crowd around him and he's giving basically like a live acoustic set. And um, it's just pretty incredible. And he's like, yeah, you know, fuck, fuck the CMAs, fuck Nashville, you know. And, uh, you know, he's just not doing it the way uh, everybody else is doing it. I would say that Sturgill um, actually, it's not that he's doing anything out of the ordinary. He's just getting back to the ordinary for Nashville, for Nashville songwriters, for the way it was. Um, You make these dynamic albums. You play lots of different roles, song to song. And sometimes you're very country, and sometimes you're very middle America. Sometimes you straddle these different lines. That was always the exciting part about good country music. Mm-hmm. That was always the exciting part about a Johnny Cash mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, a Dolly Parton. Waylon Jennings. Uh, Waylon Jennings. Yeah. I mean, these guys, the, these people, they straddled a lot of different lines stylistically. And they were rooted, they were rooted in country, like a Roy Orbison, mm-hmm. which was brought up earlier, that, that, great, that great phrase, country politics to describe Roy Orbison. Um, yeah. You know, you can appeal to people in New York City and you can appeal to people in Alabama because you're telling a common story. It goes back to Ryan Adams. Yep. A couple episodes ago, you're telling a common story. You're telling a simple story. So what Sturgill is getting down to is nothing new. It's just something pure, and that's a brave way to be, especially when you have the pressures of the, of the people that back you financially. So, um, you know. I got, I got to say with Sturgill too, so much um, of what I appreciate about him is um, his live performance. And I know you guys haven't seen him live yet, but I'm dragging you with me. I don't think I have to drag you to the next um, 
next concert. Um, his, yeah, we'll just take the train. We'll just take the train. I'll, you take the train. I'll take the ferry. We'll I'll take drive. Take the choo choo. You can do this. I'll do that. Um, I don't tr- trust Christy and his bridges, but um, no, the, no, no. But um, this guitarist, and I'm trying to figure out his name because I, I I just was like obsessed. It was I saw him in Radio City Music Hall with my friend Handy. Took me. We had front row. Shout out to Handy. We had front row seats. I literally could like touch the stage. I did touch the stage, and. Um, it was it was phenomenal. This was um, like September October in oh September fourteenth. I'm looking at it right now in New York City and um, the guitarist. I'm telling you, when you said that about straddling different bands, I feel like that guitarist could have been up there with Metallica or up there with you know um, Mano a Mano with Eddie Van Halen or I don't know what. But like it was just like to watch that guitarist and right. he was just incredible. Yeah, well, he was sometimes like a, a, like a, a certain type of front person songwriter performer just attracts the some of the best session players Mm -hmm. special people want to surround him and elevate what he's already doing or be a part of what he's doing and be elevated by him sometimes lightning strikes like that i guess and so I guess, okay, so just to go back to the guitar playing that I saw, because that's what I was, like, mesmerized with. So Simpson's playing the lead guitar, um, which he did in the beginning of his solo career way back um, in the day. And then um, the bassist, is that how you say it? Yes. Yes, bassist. Um, that, that's the guy I was fixated on, Chuck Bartels. He's a big... Mm-hmm. Big old guy. He's not. He's not. He's not attractive. But I was very drawn to him. I, he, you know, he's like. He's like a. I don't he's know. Not a vibe. I, yeah, Chuck Bartels. Right. He was incredible. So you got to check him out. Right anyway, on. and just like the spirit of the summer of love, which began this episode, I wanted to share this quote from Sturgill from his 2016 Rolling Stone interview with David Ritz. Ritz asks Sturgill what he plans to do after his tour, and Sturgill says, "Maybe I'll do a dance record, or maybe another song cycle. This time, a love story from the old west." Whichever way I go, I'm trying to learn not to second-guess myself. As long as I put art before business, I'll just let love lead the way. Well, barometrically, we've dipped down to negative six degrees. We drank all the Vermont beer, which means it's time to say goodbye, and thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check out CoverStoryPodcast.com for our show notes and to drop us a line. And of course, subscribe to Cover Story on iTunes and Stitcher so you don't miss an episode. We look forward to sharing episode six with you, where we're going to try to keep the fire burning. Until next time, look out streets, here we come. <laughs>